1992. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And yes, I do in fact believe it's a miracle. Um, seems like a great group. I really appreciate the, uh, the topic embedded in this because uh, I want to give you a little bit about my story and then get into what I think is the absolute most fascinating part of life. And it just happens to be, you know, what we were, a we're able to do because we are so lucky to be alcoholics and to be in recovery. But, you know, I wanted to start off and answer your question, which is, you know, how did I establish a relationship with my higher power? And it was really pretty simple. All I did was start drinking and continue drinking <laughs> until I absolutely couldn't drink anymore. And I wanted to take my own life and I destroyed, you know, my life practically and those that, that you know, chose to be close to me. So uh, my actual role in that was really very minimal once I, you know, got the, the taste of whiskey in my system. But, um, uh, you know, the, the biggest question to me and, and what drives me is, you know, not how did I establish it as much as how in the world do we maintain it when so many of us fall by the wayside and we have so many fits and starts. I was, uh, you know, born in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, I like my little joke is that I was born in the spring of 1967. I was 13 years old at the time, and I was on the golf course in front of my parents' house, and I and two friends had liberated a bottle of whiskey, and I had managed to go up to the uh, the package store and convince the the little people that I was uh, in fact. 21 and not 13 and I don't think they cared they sold me some beer and we proceeded to go back to my house my parents were out of town my little old granny was uh you know sort of tending the fort of course it was about six o'clock and she was sound asleep so we you know decided we were civilized drinkers so I knew all about drinking scotch and water so you know being a little sophisticated so I made everybody drink a, a full iced tea glass full of scotch, followed, I mean, chug it, then followed by a full iced tea glass full of water, and then chug a beer. Needless to say, it did not take long until we all had experiences that we're still remembering to this day. My two friends who are still good friends of mine to this day, but aren't alcoholics, had a terrible experience. It started off fun for them, but it ended up horribly. You know, me, I swear to you, it was, it, I met God that night for the first time. All the isms of being a young kid and, you know, not fitting in, not being good enough, you know, all the hoopla of all these things went to the wayside and I was propelled. I remember, you know, being rolling around on the grass, dedicating my life then and there to the pursuit of this, that this was the best thing that I could ever imagine. And, you know, truthfully, you know, that that held up for a long time until it didn't. And then when it didn't, boy, did it turn ugly quick. So, um, 13, as I said, you know, I, I started drinking then and drinking every chance I got, which meant every single weekend. And then um, my father was killed when I was 16. And that was a license 
to just be as bad as I wanted to be because nobody dared tell me anything because I had that trump card of, you know, having sympathy. And my poor mother, and I had two younger sisters and they were, you know, they were budding alcoholics themselves. And so my mother sort of had her hands full <laughs> and, I, and I fled under the radar. Um, not to belabor the issue, but I had a lot of the same problems that we've all had. You know, I had physical problems, liver damage, I had financial problems, relationship problems, problems, you know, keeping employed. But the biggest problem really came when I got, uh, hold on one second, I got a scream. <laughs> okay, I don't think it worked. They don't listen to me either. Uh, by the way, if anybody wants an Australian Shepherd or two, I've got one for you. Just kidding. Um, so the, the point is that, uh, you know, it just kept drinking. Yeah, I kept drinking more and more and more. And it went from, you know, weekends to it went to daily, you know, um, and it just never dawned on me. I'd go through periods where I was fairly um, uh, competent, if you will. And then, you know, get I'd turn it around and good things would start happening. And then as one of the members of my home group, which is PPG Chat, Dallas always says, we work really hard to get our ducks in a row, and then we go duck hunting. And so I went duck hunting an awful lot and got the chance to burn this, burn this thing down to the ground. So I reached the point where I was actually, you know, suicidal and you know, depression ran in my family. The alcohol had just gotten, you know, terrible, terrible, terrible. Uh, my two younger sisters were both alcoholic by this point. My father's sister died of cirrhosis. My father obviously was an alcoholic and he was killed uh, in the plane crash. So it just, you know, whatever, you know, hope that I had for the future sort of diminished. And uh, it was it. But, you know, I had an experience that really was divine intervention. I was working in a business in Atlanta and this uh, woman came into my office one day and, you know, she said, you look awful. And I had uh, quit drinking. And like I said, on December 31st, 1992, and I had made a promise to this woman I was dating at the time that, you know, she, she'd sort of had enough. And so I promised that I'd quit. And I'd actually gone about 60 days without drinking. And it was the worst 60 days of my life. And I was fit to be tied, literally suicidal. So we'd broken up during that period. And um, this woman in my office came to me and she said, you know, uh, Yale, I'm in, I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, I sort of suspected that. And she goes, uh, you know, I'm about to do something that we just don't do. We never take somebody else's inventory, but I just want you to know you're an alcoholic and you need to come to a meeting with me today at noon. As a matter of fact, I'm not taking no for an answer. And literally when you're actively planning your own exit, there's not a lot of arguments to be made for you got something else to do. So I went to my first meeting and I went in there and guess what? I had nothing in common with anybody because I didn't really think I was an alcoholic, even though that I was drinking every day, except for the 60 days. And I was just miserable, but I thought I was crazy. 
I thought it was more, you know, it was cooler to be crazy than it was to be just a common garden variety alcoholic like everybody else in my family. So I held on to that, and but I had no options. I had nothing to, to really keep me grounded. So I just kept coming back. And then this, one of the greatest days of my life occurred at some point, you know, I'd probably been going a couple of months and uh, I stopped hearing the differences between everybody's story. It wasn't consequences and comparing it. It came down to me hearing the feelings and the emotions and the loss of control and the powerlessness that occurred. And when it did, the light came on and it was like, okay, this, at least I'll never have to ask this question again. I knew then and there that I was alcoholic that I always have, I mean, I had been since I was, you know, a young, young rascal and that, uh, you know, I may be crazy, but that didn't have anything to do. I was also alcoholic. And before I could really address anything else, I had to at least figure out what that was. And this was a big clubhouse in Atlanta and uh, they were great, wonderful people who did the very best they could because they were, you know, they were conventional you know, AA, and it was, you know, discussion meetings and keep coming back. It works if you work. And I did. They said 90 and 90. And I did. They said, you know, just, you know, don't drink even if your butt falls off. It did. And I didn't. But it, it was slow. But I ended up, you know, having a, a spiritual awakening. It wasn't the first spiritual awakening I had, but we'll get to that in a minute. But it was certainly pronounced. And I started working with other people. And, you know, I, I, you know, I had about 10 sponsees over the first 18 months or so. And I pray every week for those 10 people. And I pray I didn't kill anybody because I only passed on what I'd been told. And I didn't know much about the secret of Alcoholics Anonymous. Apparently that was something they only kept for a special few and they hid it somewhere and I didn't know where it was. And I, I just, I didn't even know it, but we'll get to that in a second too. So um, kept going, everything went really well. And then, um, you know, things got better. And I started drifting away from the program. I moved from Atlanta back to Dallas and uh, tried a big group here and it just, you know, wasn't the same. I was, you know, I probably had some sort of, you know, you know, just comfort or pride in the process because I'd, I'd stopped going to meetings pretty regularly. So um, my ego had come back. It was just horrifying. Um, over the next 12 years, I managed to stay dry. I did not relapse because I had gotten to the point where I was really depressed again. I was going through severe business problems, you know, because having had, you know, 15 or 18 years of sobriety, I'd actually started a business here in town and had a couple hundred people working for me. And, you know, we were, you know, it was in healthcare, so we had a lot of, you know, feel good effect to it. But the wheels came off and I got depressed and I got suicidal and I had nothing to hold on to. I had a faith in God, but it was not, you know, it was not what the word would be active, if you will. It was, matter of fact, I'll say this, that if you ever hear somebody utter this phrase, 
I no longer have to work the steps because I'm living them. Please run from that person <laughs> because when lightning strikes that person, you don't want to be collateral damage. And it was uh, it was along those lines that you know it was, I was once again at the end of the rope. Didn't have anything else, you know, to, to avenues to turn to. My mother died at this point. My last family member, and uh, one of my sisters had died. So, uh, from the disease, and uh, I was I was at a function and I met some absolutely insane person. You know, if you ever meet somebody and you go, well, I thought I was crazy but I must not be because I have met somebody who is, <laughs> and this is that person. But once again, it was divine intervention. She started talking about how happy she was and how she didn't drink and how she went to this group in Dallas called the primary purpose group. Since I had no other options, I went to the meeting and guess what happened when I showed up? I had uh, 22 years of uh, sobriety at this point, And I felt like the biggest fake and the biggest fraud in the world. Kids were running around with four and five months that understood things about AA and the program that I had not even heard of. And, you know, by this point I had, you know, sponsored people. At least, at least I thought I wouldn't be kicked out of the room. I didn't think I was an AA all-star, but, you know, you know, I was open. I was, I was at the end of my rope. I was suicidal again. And I had no choice but to keep coming back. I ended up getting a sponsor. Some of you know, you know, Myers Raymer, and you know, he's one of these really charismatic, great people. But it was so busy, he didn't have much time. But but I didn't have any choices, so I just watched him. I listened to his tapes and his records, uh, tapes and um, you know, talking things, and then I just copied him. He was really big on greeting newcomers. He was really big on sponsoring. He was huge on having a commitment, and a commitment in Dallas is where you know. We go out to hospitals and institutions on a weekly basis to carry this message. And it is more sacred than it is going to a meeting or going to your home group. Well, I quickly learned what secret that they had been hiding from me. It was the secret that was mysteriously contained right here in this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on the first 164 pages. And it was the program and I'd worked the steps, but, but not apparently with any real knowledge, I did not even fully understand what the problem was. According to the doctor's opinion, I was chronic without a doubt, but I did not know. And through the education of this, through getting a commitment everywhere, I've been going to the Salvation Army every week for six years now, and it's completely transformed my life and my outlook. And it is all based on a spiritual foundation, which is, is incredible. And I really want to focus on that more than you know, anything to do with me. Because I feel like that everything, you know, was just said, you know, what did I do to, to you know, and establish my relationship with the higher power, you know, basically I just surrendered. And I believe that, that, you know, my higher power must have been, you know, calling or allowing this to happen because I, I had, you know, made so many promises, but let's go back to what the doctors, you know, Dr. William Duck and so forth said in there, because I think it's really important and we can't go over it too many times and stress it. But he said several things. He said, you know, obviously there are multiple types of alcoholics. There's the moderate drinker who can take it or leave it, you know, leaves drinks un, 
finished, there's the heavy drinker who in every single way looks like a chronic alcoholic. You know, they can have physical, you know, damage. They can die a few years early. They can, you know, have legal, financial, family, all kinds of problems, burn their life to the ground. But with one fundamental difference that given sufficient force and pressure or whatever motivation, fall in love, you know, get threatened with multiple, you know, decades in jail, they have the power to quit, go to treatment sometimes, but they can quit with human power. They are not beyond human help. So by definition, the, um, the chronic alcoholic is somebody who has passed that. And the only way that we can learn that is by doing the work necessary on the streets and the bars, you know, to, before we get in. When we've so beat up that we're able to have moments of clarity. Well, Dr. Suckworth also stressed, you know, when talking to Bill Wilson about the two-part illness. And it's fascinating to think about this because, you know, if you go back to, you know, in the, uh, the other big book, it talks, you know, there's a fellow named King Solomon. And he talked about in, in you know, his chapter on Psalms, talked about what happens to alcoholics. And he talks about it in references, you know, those who, you know, wake up in the morning and know not what they've done. They get, you know, beat to a pulp and yet feel it not and that they keep coming back to do it over and over again. And that was, you know, several thousand years BC. So you go forward to 1934 when Bill Wilson was meeting Dr. Silkworth for the first time, there was no solution. There was no treatment. There was nothing. You know, you had several options as an alcoholic, you know, or for an addict for that matter, you would either be institutionalized in a jail or in a mental hospital. And I, you know, got the opportunity to visit one when my sister was there back in the early 70s the Georgia Regional Mental Health Hospital, and it was literally Nurse Ratchet, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And, you know, once again, it was one of those commitments where I don't care, I'll die from alcoholism before I, you know, end up in a place like that. And uh, so you either going to go into an institution or you're going to be dead. And, you know, it's still statistically sad as it is, you know, and I don't know if it's actually 3%, 5%, 7%, but the, the amount of time an average alcoholic will get, you know, in the, not an average, but the, uh, most of us, I think 90, excuse me, I'm trying to get them, I'm telepathically telling them to shut up. Um, only three or five percent of us ever make it five years or longer in the program. So 95, 97 percent of us die with the disease. And by now, probably most of us have seen people die of alcoholism. And it's really, really ugly and unfortunate. Give me one second. Come here. But back in the day, you know, when Bill was writing the forward to the second opinion, uh, it was the, writing the forward to the, uh, forward to the second edition, he said that uh, of all those who came into AA, the alcoholics came in and really tried, 50% got sober at once and stayed that way. Of the remainder, another 25% got sober after a couple of relapses. Um, and of the remainder, most of them, you know, a lot, big percentage, three out of four would show progress when they came back. Uh, 
So um, there's a big distinction between the 75% roughly and the three to 5% here locally. And nobody really knows exactly what it's from, but what it does is it really, I think, stresses the fact that, you know, it could be that uh, a lot of people are coming into the program that aren't chronic alcoholics and, you know, for either they're getting a nudge from the judge or, you know, parents or people are intervening with them and because they're heavy drinkers and people haven't defined it well enough. And, you know, all people are welcome if they have an honest desire to quit drinking. But, you know, we have a, a you know, an obligation to be able to explain the facts of alcoholism to everyone so they can make the determination from themselves, because I believe that's the real foundation of recovery. So Dr. Silkworth in 1934 started outlining the two-part disease. There's the physical part, which is when I take a drink, you know, it triggers an allergy in my body, which turns out to be a manifestation of craving. And I will drink more and more until I get drunk and I have consequences. It's not the consequences that really mean anything, nor determine whether or not I'm alcoholic. The whole point is, do I have the allergy? And if I do, then I'm powerless over what happens once I've consumed some alcohol, similar to all the other types of allergies, whether it's, you know, strawberries, peanuts, you know, avocado, shellfish, penicillin, whatever it would be. You know, if you are susceptible to it and once you take some, you can't just think it away. You can't, you know, pray it away. You were, you've signed up for that trip, no matter how long it is. So powerlessness over what happens when I take alcohol is, is a real determining factor. The good news is the physical part is 100% um, treatable. You don't drink, you don't trigger the allergy. End of story. The problem is on the other side which is the mental obsession. And it starts off, you know, I'll go on a run and, you know, I'll have that moment of clarity, which we've all had. We wake up, you know, feeling remorseful that we've hurt, you know, all the people that cared for us. We've blown through all our resources. We've made promises we did not keep nor probably intend to. And life is just collapsing on top of us. Maybe we're depressed. Maybe we're suicidal, you know, but either way, then and there, we make a firm resolution that we're never going to drink again. Never going to do it. Uh, you know, I certainly was great at it. Matter of fact, in the last 10 years, I bet I made that, you know, quit drinking promise uh, at least every day. Problem was I would change my mind, you know, usually a couple hours later. So it started off, um, you know, uh, I'll have this, you know, commitment to quit, a firm resolution. When that happens, though, you know, the first part of the villains show up, which is restlessness, irritableness, and discontentment. And those are things that everybody, every human faces in one degree or another, but, but non-alcoholics or addicts have other means of handling this. They can either, you know, they can go have a drink, they can go to the gym or go for a walk, they can play with their pets and go read a book, and they just don't have the same consequences. For us, though, it can be fatal by what it triggers, you know, restlessness. And I certainly had this where I just, you know, wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Wherever I was standing, I had to be somewhere else. I was jittery and it was just, you know, it's like being in somebody else's body. Irritable, you know, just a week or a month earlier, I was promising that I was going to be the most wonderful, loving, you know, 
you know, son, husband, boyfriend, you know, employee, whatever it would be. And, you know, and that I was going to make it up to all these people that I had hurt. And what happens is now they are officially climbing on my last nerve. I am so unhappy that, that this is going on. And I don't even realize what's going on. In discontent, I went from unemployed and unemployable to overworked and underappreciated. And what the book tells me can happen between a week and a month before my mind starts marginalizing or rationalizing all the consequences that happened and telling myself, I have misjudged this. I am not a chronic alcoholic. I'm going to try every, I, you know, I'm going to try all the ways I have not tried yet to, to manage this. It's going to be different this time, but it never is. So when that happens, the mental obsession gets triggered and that's the real villain in the story because ultimately I am powerless over that. So whether it's a week or a month and I go back to drinking or whether it's like the story of the man of, you know, 30 in the book. And, you know, he went a long time, I think 25 years before he retired and then relapsed. If we have this, we will always succumb. And science has come a long way to actually, you know, prove this up on how the different portions of the brain are triggered because they remember the ease and comfort, which comes from taking a few drinks. So whenever we are restless, irritable, discontent and going through that frustration, the brain is always saying, hey, you don't have to feel this way. Having a bad day, we can make it better. You know, having a great day, well, you're cheating yourself by not really celebrating. And at some point, if we are chronic, we, by definition, we will succumb to this unless you know, we have a, a, a treatment center. And the book says, you know, obviously that, um, you know, if, if we cannot control the amount that we drink or we can't stop for good and all, then we probably are alcoholics suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can solve. Goes back to what Dr. Young, you know, talked to Roland Hazard about, a vital spiritual experience, that there was phenomena that they'd heard about in history which would actually affect, you know, a substantial change. But most of us, even to this day, you know, die of this disease. So this is sort of the missing link. The first step says clearly, you know, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Well, the admission, I think, is really an understanding of knowing what your truth is, that you've done enough experimenting where you know that once you take alcohol, anything can happen. I used to end up in different states and I don't still to this day don't know exactly what happened or how it happened, but I'd find myself, you know, days later and I'd be in some strange state going, you know, what in the world? Um, uh, so as, as we progress through this, um, the, the consequences were not the issue. It's knowing what my truth is. Am I really powerless over staying away from this again? And the book's really clear that if we have any doubts about it, it suggests going out and trying some controlled drinking, because that's where we're going to be able to determine once and for all. Now, the second part of this gets into the main topic of this talk, which is we, you know, that our lives have become unmanageable. And a lot of times I hear it described as, um, you know, the consequences, the unmanageability. What I really think it is, is I've proven to myself conclusively that my life is unmanageable by me. 
that I'm finally ready to surrender, that I have tried this every which way possible, and that, you know, this is this is just going to end horribly. I finally, my ego is in such a, a, you know, disrepute that I can at least look at this. Second one is came to believe in a power, second step, came to believe in a power greater than ourselves. You know, I believe that that for most of us in the book says in the book that we have a sense of a higher power and it came from somewhere. I said earlier that I'd had some spiritual experiences. One occurred when I was 16 years old and I went through this, this, you know, revelatory experience and I felt the presence of God and, you know, it was wonderful. My feet didn't touch the ground for about a week. Quickly though, you know, uh, alcohol, <laughs> going out, being crazy, and some some little girlfriends that I had, you know, I forgot about, you know, the, this wonderful feeling with God, and you know, slowly drifted away, as was my habit, making all kinds of promises. You know, I also had lots of consequences, like most of us made all these promises to a higher power: God, get me out of this, and I'll never, ever, ever do it again. Well, that that told me that I must believe in God, you know, of some description. The good news of NAA is we don't have to have a textbook version of the, the, you know, someone else's definition, some denominational view. As long as we're willing to have a belief that something greater than ourselves could have the power to keep us sober, even if it's the AA group, we've got enough faith to take the next step. And the third one, the third step is we made a decision to turn our will and allow us to the care of God as we understand it. Fascinating. Fascinating. What's the next line after we say the prayer? We thought well before taking this step. Why? It's the only place in the book that, that has a warning, you know, after. It wasn't even before we say the prayer. But the book tells me that alcohol is not my problem, that it's powerlessness. But the root of the problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, and I can't fix it myself. If I could have, I would have. I have to have a higher power. Have to. Now, one of the things that I think is important to stress is this. A spiritual awakening will get you sober, but a spiritual awakening will not keep you sober. If so, nobody in the clergy would ever relapse, and most of us who relapsed after having spiritual awakening, it wouldn't be a factor. And the genius of AA is what I'm going to get to is our relapse prevention plan, you know, hopefully when I wrap this up. But um, the third step, third step prayer, you know, we are making a, a trade with God, if you will. And the trade is that, um, you know, I had, I had called out for God. I had asked for, you know, to have my, my fanny saved time and time again to no avail. I think God was aware of multiple things that, that I didn't see. One is I had to get to a point where I was willing to actually make a trade that God would take, having a new employer and being all powerful, he would meet all of our needs as long as I do two things, stay close to him and do his work well, which happened to be steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, and, and two is the book tells me that most of us will not listen to pro professionals or well-meaning people who try to talk to us about our alcoholism. He said that the most effective means of reaching someone is 
a, a, another alcoholic, well, you know, armed with the facts about himself and alcoholism, primarily the problem and what the solution is. The solution is a higher power if it's powerlessness. But I have to change from being selfish and self-centered to other-centered, and that can only be done through God. So the prayer actually says on, I think it's 63, that uh, uh, many of us said, as we understood him, God, offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. I'm surrendering. You know, I, I, you know my life is unmanageable by me. This is my official sign over. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Selfishness and self-centered are the root of the problem. I'm asking for something very specific, but because I can't pray for things that just you know, improve me, but do that so that I can uh, better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, all my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to that power, that love, and that way of life. May I do the will always. So it's the trade-off. God has, they estimate that 10% of the population in the United States is alcoholic. That's roughly 33 million people. And if the only people we'll listen to are other alcoholics, then we are being recruited into God's special forces. All the shame, guilt, and remorse that we accumulated to get here is going to be turned into gift, benefit, and blessing as we see that, that it's specifically designed to help people. It's the most incredible thing in, in the world is working with other alcoholics, and it is not optional. It was never intended to be, well, I'm not good at that. I'll, I'll, I'll just go to meetings. No, carrying the message is everything. We'll get to that in a second. So this trade in step three, I think, is the beginning. Whether or not we think it's important to the extent that, that it's, a, it's you know something indelible spiritually, I, th I think... Proof has it that, you know, we're doing something of great significance and even Bill, you know, threw the warning in, you know, we thought well before taking this step. Still fascinating. Then the action steps, four through nine, where we're really getting a chance to look at the things that, that, that drove us, you know, whether it was resentment, fears, sexual misconduct, how did selfishness and self-centeredness manifest itself in my actions towards other people? And, and how can I define that through the fifth step is going to allow me to come out of this with some understanding of those uh, manifestations, the actions, but also a list of character defects, not psychological diagnoses that we carry with us for the rest of our lives, but things that's like bulk trash. We're getting ready to have our higher power turn over. And that's what we do. So we make a list and, you know, we, we get ready in step six. And then we firmly ask God in the seven step prayer to take, take the junk away. And I'm really, you know, I'm recommitting to the steps. Then we start cleaning up the wreckage from the past. But we'll be amazed before we're halfway through the ninth step. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Well, what's that mean halfway through the ninth step? What's our, those are our amends. You know, as we start the amends, we immediately start work on steps 10, 11, and 12. And that's AA's relapse prevention plan. Uh, story about Jim, you know, uh, the car dealer, you know, all went well for a while, but Jim failed to enlarge his spiritual life. Didn't say that Jim failed to have a spiritual experience or Jim failed to go to enough meetings. He failed to enlarge his spiritual 
life. Some people refer to 10, 11, and 12 as the maintenance steps. I would argue that this is you know, much more on the growth orientation side. Everything that we do, just, just getting to the ninth step, getting to the 10th, 11, 12th, is just breaking the ice, just getting started. Because what's a spiritual awakening? It means I was asleep. I didn't see what was going on. And all of a sudden I'm awake. What am I awake to? I'm awake to the world of the spirit. And it's almost like a parallel universe. When we start seeing things that, you know, coincidences, the first three, four, five thousand times something happens, you know, being a, a modern person, I'm going, well, that's just a coincidence. That's just a coincidence. And then as an analytical person, I'm going, you know, it's statistically impossible for there not to be a higher power. I have seen too much. And with that, the greatest transformation starts occurring. Because if we take a graph and at the bottom we have the steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, then 10, 11, 12. And we have a line that goes horizontal halfway up and that's our belief system. Most of us believe in some sort of a higher power right now, but how much faith and trust do you really have? I would argue that, that that's variable and somewhat situational, and it's normal. As, as selfish and self-centeredness is able to be reduced by working the steps and seeing my higher power show up, particularly in the fifth step and in the ninth step, and in the 12th step, I'm able to take baby steps and watch my faith and trust in this process grow. Proportionately, I'm able to let go of selfishness and self-centeredness. Belief is sort of a random thing. As an example is, you know, there, it's estimated that there are roughly 500 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and that there are roughly 500 billion galaxies in the seeable universe. Well, that's a whole lot of real estate out there. So I'm pretty convinced there's got to be some sort of life of some description out there. Doesn't have to be superior to ours, but it just seems to be improbable that there isn't. So technically, I believe in aliens, but I don't put any faith and trust in it. And it's not until I see this thing being built. And this is what our higher power does for us. That's such a gift. Because also, you know, back to this thing, how did I establish it? I just surrendered. I was so beaten up by the process that all I did was stop saying no. And then I, you get pulled along and you start, you know, there's all kinds of different philosophies in life that support, you know, how the AA, you know, process works, whether it's Taoism or Stoicism and things like this. But, but it really talks about how we will be educated when, when we're ready. And the cool thing about the program is it's so simple. We make it so complicated. We intellectualize it. Sometimes even in big book studies, we'll get hung up on word meanings and things. And we forget to say, hey, if this was really a complicated program, none of us would get it. And I think we're all guilty of not, you know, telling the newcomer, you know, the, one of the greatest gifts we can give anybody is the gift of encouragement, because of all things, that seems to be, you know, depleted, you know, for the most part in today's society, especially in this COVID world and the political world and whatever else is going on. You know, we have the vision through our spiritual awakening to be able to, you know, see, like, for instance, 
what an incredible opportunity. We can't meet in person, which is horrible, but yet we get these Zoom meetings. And now, you know, big book studies or, or AA meetings are being started all over the world. We're transporting this, this, this excitement, this joy, and this basic reliance on uh, a faith in God. And it's, you can just see it blooming. Uh, you know, I'm blessed that I have, I'm on about four calls a week you know, in the UK and what, you know, Wales and, um, you know, uh, France and places. And, you know, you just see that, that people had the answers hidden from them. And you start seeing that once they start reading the big book and they start getting to 10, 11, and 12 and working with other people, then they, uh, it's just, they get filled with this thing. I want to say one thing else. Um, you know, unfortunately, we all deal with a lot of people that relapse. Uh, when it happens, I, I get people coming to me all the time going, oh, I, I relapsed. I don't know what happened. I was working the program. I end up asking the same three questions, the same verbiage, and I invariably get the same answers. Number one was, how many people were you sponsoring? And after some, you know, hemming and hawing, the answer is generally no. And then I say, when did you stop doing your prayer and meditation. And while I'm positive there's somebody out there that's relapsed on the day that they did the prayer and meditation, I've just never met them. Nobody that in my universe has been said, well, you know, it's always something that happened or some excuse and, you know, they stopped doing it. And then my favorite question is, did you ever call your sponsor with a 10th step? And most people don't understand what that was. And being able to stay close to God and do his work well, which is step 12, by helping other people, we have to keep the channel clear. And, you know, 10, which is continuing to take personal inventory and wrong, promptly admitted it, you know, is, you know, our, our many fourths and fifths. And then, um, you know, sought the prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God. You know, that really gets to the heart of keeping those channels open so I can be trained through the fifth, through the 12th step. 12th step is like holding up a mirror to our faces and being, you know, being able to be pulled into this vacuum because, you know, uh, once again, you know, I can't turn myself from selfish to self-centered to other-centered. It has to be done by a higher power. And the fascinating thing it does, the greatest feeling that I'm aware of on this planet, and I was talking to somebody today about it, is when you work in with somebody and they're working with somebody and their lives start changing, you start, you get this affirmation that this process is working and that God is alive. And it, it's just incredible. One of the things that I'm, dawned on me that every day in every single situation, my higher power goes before me and puts something in my path for me to find to be of service to someone else. Yes, I get to help somebody else and that's great, but that's not the most powerful piece of that. The most powerful piece of it is every time I find that and I see the specific application, my faith is built. I go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I'm part of a process. And all of a sudden, then you, you get to the point where you realize that you may have belief, but faith and trust is different. One of the things, please forgive me for this thing, but I just find it fascinating, which is, all right, wherever you are right now, envision that the lights go out and it's completely dark. And all of a sudden you hear this 
thunderous, you know, blasts of trumpets or whatever. And this booming light comes in, your door flies open, and this big voice goes, you know, Yale, I've been meaning to have a talk with you. What would your reaction be if all of a sudden you are confronted with something that we say we have belief in? then it was the most powerful thing in the universe. If God, on page 52, it says, when we became alcoholic, confronted by, you know, uh, uh, I can't remember, we can uh, postpone or evade. We had to fearlessly admit the proposition, God either is or he is not. Is there everything or nothing at all? What's our choice to be? Paraphrase. But if that's the case, I think I'm hitting the deck and I am immediately saying, oh my gosh, I have completely misunderstood this. And I would start, I'm sure apologizing like nobody's business, but you'd be forever changed. And that's the important thing. You would have a personal experience of such death that it would be, you know, uh, irrefutable and your life would be forever different. Well, that's what happens in this program by walking the, this road and helping people get through the steps and getting able to do 10, 11, 12 every single day and living a life of service where what I think and feel doesn't matter. You know, I've sort of, uh, you know, played that card early in my career. Now it's about, you know, trying to do other things. And what I find is that by being able to help, it's so much better than being, you know, self-directed or self-seeking and all those things. So anyway, the point is that to, to be a part of this, this special forces in God's team, to be able to look at the people that are on the path with you and realize that it is like a parallel universe. If you ever had to look in the back of an airplane map and seen the flight map, you see all the cities connecting everything. I, I sometimes envision that that must be what it's like, you know, it, you know, in this parallel universe to, to really start identifying with this, that things are going on all the time. And those are the coincidences. And we finally start being able to just through a glass darkly be able to, you know, connect these dots. And then you realize that I get by being an alcoholic and by being in recovery, I get to be on a path that, that is so incredible. It's such a blessing. And I could not have achieved it unless I'd paid, unless I'd gone through the beating, you know, to get here. So with that, please, if I said anything that offended, I apologize. Listen to your sponsor. Don't listen to me. It's not in the big book. Forget it. But I really appreciate y'all. Hang the 20 people that hung in there. <laughs> Thank you.